Good morning. Well, happy July 4th. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and I'm glad that you're here. We we're in a series entitled This is God's Church, and we'll be in that series again, continuing next week. Uh, we're taking kind of a step aside this morning. I think it fits in with where we have been and where we are going, but I wanted to take a moment and to reflect a bit on what today is, Independence Day, and to try and connect these two great quests for freedom. The greater freedom, the spiritual freedom that we have in Christ, and then also a great but lesser freedom, the freedom that we have as citizens of this great country. And so here's my aim this morning. I want to show through this text that we just read the traits that must be present for the ongoing growth and advancement of the gospel message. And these happen to be traits that were present at the founding of our nation and were then ongoingly present uh, as our nation grew. And so this morning, I want to draw these connections. Of course, we believe the planting of the church, uh, that the movement of the gospel is more important than the founding of our nation and the movement of political freedom. Um, but both are good things, and I am grateful for both. And so I will attempt to tell the story of the founding of our nation and the traits that we saw in there um, as really examples for us on what it looks like to pledge allegiance to the greater King, Jesus. All right? So that's our aim for this morning. In Acts chapter 14, there's a story about Paul prior to the text that we just read. Uh, Paul, oh, by the way, let me answer this because I know some of you are like, you're not wearing your T-shirt, and you said you were going to wear your T-shirt every Sunday this year. I'm making a holiday exception, okay? And so I will wear it again next week, all right? So I'm not a liar. Well, I kind of lied, but forgive me. Okay, um, where was I? The Bible. So Acts chapter 14, Paul is like preaching the gospel, and the church is growing, and everyone's revering Paul as a god, which gets a little too far, and then in the very next story, this mob shows up and the mob turns the people that Paul had been preaching to against Paul. Uh, and what we see here is mob mentality, that like the mob can revolt against the leader that has done nothing but good for them and served them. And so the mob mentality shows up and destroys temporarily the work that God had been doing. This is a good quick reminder for us as a church to not be a part of the mob, but to be a part of the other group here, which is Disciples of Christ, um, because mob mentality can disrupt what God is trying to do. And so the disciples rally around Paul. The mob stones Paul, and they leave him for dead. And so Paul is laying there. It looks like he's dead. The disciples come around, and it, as soon as the disciples showed up, Paul gets back up almost as if there was some like supernatural strength through the, the brotherhood that the disciples there shared. And we're going to revisit this point, the mutual support that we give one to another. Last week, I mentioned, or, or I guess didn't mention, it was my entire sermon. Last week, we talked about how there is a kind, that was the verse or the wording in the scriptures, that is in deep right now. And it is an aversion to absolute truth. And that if that kind is going to get uprooted from an entrenched enemy, uh, that we have to pick up the battle in the spiritual to win it. In that, then I announced that we are going to have a week that we are calling Church Week. 
And some people are like, why isn't it revival week? Because that's what we used to call it. Well, because we don't get to determine when revival happens. God does. We can determine when we have church, though. And so we're going to have church week, and whatever God wants to do, he can do. And so we're going to, beginning July 12th, meet five nights in a row, Monday through Friday, 6.30. We're going to preach, we're going to pray, and we're going to sing. And so I hope you'll come back and join us on as many of those nights as you are able and invite whomever you would want that also wants to see God move. The time of casual Christian activity that advances against the enemy is over. The colonists found themselves in a time similar to that, when their petitions no longer worked, when their requests and their ambassadors and all else was no longer getting their message across. And so they too turned to a message. Their message was not spiritual freedom. It was political freedom. Back to the scriptures. After Paul had been stoned, the disciples rally him up, and then Paul goes and just keeps doing what he always does. It says right in the text that Paul went back in to the town that he was at, and he preached the gospel to that city. Paul would not stop preaching the gospel. It's all he knew. In Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He just kept preaching the gospel. It's all he had. The gospel's simple. Christ died in our stead. His righteousness for our sinfulness. Now we get to wear the righteousness of Christ and we get to walk in spiritual freedom because Christ rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven and now we have that spiritual freedom. And this is the message that the church goes back to. This is the message that the true church must always go back to. And Satan's first tactic in delaying the advancement of the gospel is to get us to change the message. That's it. If, we can change, if he can get us to change the gospel, if he can get us to add things onto the gospel, if he can get us to water the gospel down, that's his first tactic in trying to slow down the church. We don't want the church to be slowed down. We want the church to do as Jesus said it would, which was to always be built and to advance. And so we don't change the gospel. So we always go back to the gospel. The gospel is the center of the wheel that grows the church. Now around the gospel are four traits that I want to point out this morning. Four traits that I believe this text teaches us that must be constantly present in order for the church to continue to advance. And I believe there are, there are four traits that were also present in the founding of our nation. And so I point those out this morning. I use quotes this morning from our founding fathers to help us see to what level of passion, what level of energy and commitment ought we to have to something that is even greater than the founding of a nation to the advancement of the gospel. And so that is why this morning I, I point out these quotes and, uh, and these traits in, our, in the founding of our nation. Now, The Christian message, of course, is the gospel. The four traits revolve around it. When it comes to our nation, the message was similar, though not a spiritual freedom, a political freedom. Patrick Henry said it like this, give me liberty or give me death. Jefferson famously wrote it like this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jesus said, I came to give abundant life. I came to set you free. Last year, we did a series, Does God Want Us to Be Happy? And the answer was yes. 
So that kind of sounds familiar too. The message of the revolution was, of course, freedom. Freedom from a tyrannical ruler. And as the cause of human or political freedom moved, the four traits that we're going to see were present there in the revolution. Let's look at these four traits. And I would suggest that as these four traits are present in our church family, the advancement of the gospel will continue in our midst, which must be our greatest hope and our greatest desire. I would then also submit that where these four traits begin to lack, the advancement of the gospel will slow or stall or be stopped altogether. Trait number one, sacrifice. We see it right at the beginning of the story. Paul is stoned and he gets right back up. His conviction in the message would never allow him to stop. In 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us a pretty good detailed account of what suffering as a believer could look like. He wrote it this way. Are they servants of Christ? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Oh, whoops, I read the wrong verse. I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We just talked about that one. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. This guy's name was Paul Danger Tarsus. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So if you're a Christian that struggles with anxiety, so did Paul. You're in good company. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Paul knew what it was to sacrifice for the gospel. Now, where did Paul learn such things? Oh, from the greatest of all sacrifice, Christ. That Christ would sacrifice heaven to come to earth that he would sacrifice his life so that we might be reconciled to God. At the heart of the gospel is sacrifice. Jesus laying down his life for us. Now, as we look at Paul's sacrifice, I would hope that it would then make us turn and ask, to what am I willing to sacrifice for the cause of the gospel? Imagine this text written today. Three times I was made fun of on Facebook. Four times, somebody looked at me weird because I said I was going to church. Two times, I felt uncomfortable reading my Bible in public. The level of sacrifice the Christians are willing to endure for the sake of the gospel is directly tied to the advancement of that gospel. And so may we, may we be inspired by Paul, but may we be changed by Christ to be willing to endure all sacrifice. As we look to the founding of our nation, many Americans don't realize the extent of the founder's sacrifice. Five were captured or tortured, 12 lost their homes, 17 their fortunes, and nine lost their lives. On the day of that great signing, founding father Benjamin Rush wrote this to Benjamin, not Benjamin Franklin, to John Adams. 
Do you recollect your memorable or memorable? I can never say that word. Memorable speech upon the day on which that vote was taken. Do you recollect the pensive and awful silence which pervaded the house when we were called up one after another to the table of the president of Congress to subscribe what was believed by many at that time to be our own death warrants? That pensive and awful silence. That in that room, those 55 men, they weren't laughing. One historian noted that the only joke that was made was that the heavier ones of them would die first as they were hung. They sat there believing in something so deeply that they would sign their name, although it might mean they die. And from their perspective at the moment, that it would most certainly mean they die. Their belief in human freedom was that deep. Carter Braxton was one of those fathers. He lost his prosperous farm and the British burned his ships. He died in poverty. So too was Thomas Nelson. He put up his entire state as collateral, $2 million, so that he might help support the French allies. The French government never paid him back. He died in poverty. Richard Stockton was taken from his bed in the middle of the night and beaten by British soldiers, followed by jail and starvation. His home and all of his possessions were destroyed, forcing him and his family to live off of charity. John Hart had to leave his dying wife's bedside and his 13 children ran off in various directions to flee from the British. For more than a year, he lived in caves and forests. He returned home to find his wife dead, his children missing, his property gone. He died shortly thereafter from exhaustion and heartbreak. For the most part, these men died in relative obscurity and their names rarely make the history books. Prior to their signing of the declaration, these men had wealth, position, and power. But upon their deep conviction that compelled them to do something, they became the targets of the enemy. They knew going into it that they would be and they did it anyway because of their belief in the cause. How much more as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, are we then marked by an enemy when we stand opposed to him? But how much more then in the deeps or the depths of our conviction for our cause must we be to sacrifice all for the sake of the gospel? Paul said it this way in Acts chapter 20, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course the ministry that I have been called to, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was willing to endure all things. These men were willing to endure all things. How about us? To endure all, to face all, to sacrifice all for the cause of the gospel, that it might continue to expand. Trait number two. Just going on in the next line in the text. Oops, I'm still in 2 Corinthians. Here we go. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Paul shows back up after preaching the gospel and he realizes that they're now in a season where they need to strengthen and encourage. There are seasons in the church when this is what is most needed. 
When the weight and the weariness of spiritual battle or life's battle becomes almost overwhelming. And it is in these moments that the church's main role then, uh, one to another, is to strengthen and encourage each other, to continue to motivate one another to keep on going, to keep on believing in the advancement of the gospel. I can uh, just finished up reading a book. It, it was talking about the friendship between Washington and Franklin and how during the time from the American or the French and Indian War all the way up into the Revolution and then into the signing of the Constitution uh, and then shortly thereafter Franklin's death, the, the, the special friendship that these two founding fathers shared, the correspondences that they would have back and forth, the way they would deviate from their schedule in order to meet with each other to continue to encourage one another in their great quest. How do we do this in the church? How do we continue to encourage each other to strengthen one another? This is the whole journey we're on right now as a church. It's why we've been saying we're going deeper, not wider. It's why we continue to go back to the gospel so that we might be strengthened and encouraged to uproot the kind that is deep and to see the gospel move. We do this in the church first by continually reminding each other of the gospel. Zephaniah 3.17, I speak this to you. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Being reminded of the gospel for ourselves, the goodness of the grace that has been poured out to us, how he, the father who loves us, calms our fears and sings over us and is delighted in us. That is your personal savior. And so we remind each other of the gospel. Secondly, we pray for each other and with each other. This is in part what Church Week is about. This is why we do prayer at the end of service so that you can hear the words of your brothers and sisters in Christ standing with you, standing around you, praying for you. Paul often requested the prayers of the letters that he wrote to the churches. He also then said how he was praying for them, for spiritual strength and vigor, that they would carry on in the work now, I will submit that all I am talking about this morning only makes sense to the believer who sees that a spiritual battle is present and also who elevates the need, the great need for spiritual movement to occur. For it does not make sense to talk about these types of traits, sacrifice and perseverance and strengthening and encouraging unless we see ourselves as a part of something, a battle that is happening. But where we do see it, we must remind each other of the gospel. We must keep praying for each other. And the third trait that we see in the scriptures is friendship. We all need church friends. People that we are friends with in the gospel. People that challenge us when we need challenged. Encourage us when we need encouraged. Come around us when we're in a dark season. Celebrate with us. In times of joy, Paul wrote in one of his letters how encouraged he was simply by the presence of Onesimus, his buddy, in David's cabinet, it is listed out in the very last position in David's cabinet. You know what it says? And Hushai was the king's friend. We need friends. Friends in the context of the church that keep us moving, keep us motivated, keep us reminded of what is most important. Oh, and the gospel is the great, beautiful picture of this, is it not? That Christ was the ultimate, him on the cross, was the ultimate strengthening act. His strength we received 
He took our weakness. And now we are given his strength through the empowerment of his spirit. He was rejected and isolated on the cross so that you and I could always be encouraged by the presence of a father with us and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The cross is the ultimate strengthening and encouraging act. For Christ knew that we would need it. It's why he prayed for our strength and encouragement in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. For I believe Jesus knew that times would come, crazy years like 2020 would happen, where the church would need to be encouraged and strengthened to carry on. Thomas Paine, a few months after the signing of the declaration, said this, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. This just a few months into the Revolutionary War, Thomas Paine looked out and he could already see how the summer soldier, how the patriot, when it was easy, was already beginning to run away and to go astray. That these, those were the times that tried men's souls. Spiritually, there are these times as well. For many of us, it was the last year, or there are circumstances that have risen up in your life that are trying your soul, where the enemy is trying to use this trying time to get you to abandon faith to be distracted to lesser causes. And it is at times easier to go that way. But Payne says that he who stands now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman, but we have something better. We have the love and strength of our Savior. The love and strength of our Savior who compels us to continue to carry on even in those trying times. And we know something that although tyranny like hell is not easily defeated, hell, like tyranny, will be defeated. And so we carry on. And the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. King David wrote it this way, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And those, those now, I believe those churches now, those churches who will stand on the truth of the gospel, who will continue to proclaim it, regardless of how hard it might seem, and those Christians who will stay committed, strengthened, and encouraged to carry on, will see the glorious triumph of revival. This is what we are believing and praying for. This is what we believe the time for is right now, that we must meet and gather, strengthen, and encourage each other to carry on and to believe that the best days of the church and the gospel are ahead. The third trait, similar to this second, the very next line in the scriptures, Paul said, in saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The third trait is perseverance. Jesus said it this way, in this world, you will have trouble, trouble. 
Isn't every worthy endeavor full of trouble? It'll test our steel and our resolve. It's easy to start, but few finish. Where the beginning is easy, the middle is hard, but in this quest, the end is always worth it. At the end of his time leading the Israelites, Moses, after 40 years of leading the Israelites through the wilderness, had gotten close to the promised land. He wanted to quit. And God responded to Moses with three words, finish the work. Christ on the cross said it similarly when he yelled out, it is finished. Our faith was founded by the ultimate perseverer, Christ, who faced all, who carried the weight of all upon himself on the cross and persevered to the very end until he finished the work. We can see it in Moses. We can see it then in Christ on the cross. I'll point out in a moment how we can see it in the founding of our nation. But the message to us is clear. My friends, keep on going. In your faith, finish the work of Christ's salvation in you. Let it continue to grow. Let the gospel continue to get deeper. And for us as a church, may we finish the work of what we have been called to do, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, to fight the war in the spiritual, to beg and plead to God that he would move. It is now a thing of legend, Washington and Valley Forge. The summer, not the summer, the opposite, the winter of 77. 1777, just in case you were confused. In Washington, and about 9,000 troops stationed at Valley Forge. He held that ground over that hard winter where 2,000 of them would die. Not by attack from the enemy, but by cold, exhaustion, and disease. And they held that ground because they knew if they did not then the British army would move from New York and would sweep the nation before the French allies could arrive or the rest of the nation could be driven to war. Washington wrote a famous letter to Congress and to the states pleading, pleading that the troops could be um, rightfully armed, equipped for battle, and, and just rightfully clothed and fed. There was not enough resources or response that's why 2,000 of them died. But they held that strategic ground because they knew that they held a position between the enemy and the rest of the nation. Church, we too must hold our ground. We must hold our ground when it comes to standing for this. We must hold our ground when um, challenging the world around us to biblical standard. We must hold our ground in saying that there is a spiritual battle that is happening for we hold a strategic position between the enemy and the rest of humanity. Oh, but unlike the soldiers at Valley Forge, we are fully clothed. We are properly fed. We are rightfully armed and we are divinely led by our general Christ. 
We are clothed in his righteousness, fed by his word, armed with his spirit. And we not only can hold our ground in the darkest winter, but we can beat back the enemy until his full surrender. This is the charge of the church. To in the full righteousness and power of Christ, to see Jesus build his church in all times. I can tell you that this church was founded in perseverance. There are a few Sundays I can remember driving over to the movie theater and telling Lindsay on the way, this was before children, so no one was screaming as we were having this conversation. If this amount of people aren't here, we're done, I'm quitting, (laughs) we're over. She would say, it'll happen. And mostly it did by like one person. (laughs) I remember a particular Christmas I threw that out again. If there's not this many people, we're done. We're packing up. We're not going back next year. People will just show up and we won't be there. The right amount of people showed up and God strategically kept sending the right people at the right time. And today, friends, we're in a good season as a church. I see new new of you about every week. And we can all sense an energy that is growing here. And for that energy and for this work that God is doing to continue, it will challenge our level of perseverance. It will compel us to carry on. And we don't know what battles are out there in the future, but we do know that an enemy will always want to stop what God is doing. And whatever those battles end up being, we look to the cross and see Jesus as the great perseverer. We strengthen and encourage one another. We lay all down for the gospel and we carry on because our mission, our quest for freedom is even greater than the quest of our nation. And if it can compel people to sacrifice like that, oh, then how too can we sacrifice for this gospel? The fourth trait that must be present and is equally as important in both the founding of our nation and in the planting and growing of a church, Paul gets to in his very next line, He says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, spiritual leadership. In our nation, that leadership was found in General Washington. I still get goosebumps every time he shows up the first time in the TV show, Turn. His leadership and the leadership of our founding fathers, even after the revolution, after the war, as the nation was still united around a common cause, our nation apart apart from the Constitution would have never survived. And the Constitution was only ratified because everybody thought Washington was going to be the first president. And so that leadership emerged to carry on what started as a movement of the heart. The gospel moved in a similar fashion. As the gospel moved and as it spread and as hundreds and thousands uh, came to Christ. Later, Paul would reflect in particularly 1 Corinthians and some other letters. This now is what spiritual leadership looks like, and this is what must be instituted so that the movement that began in the heart might now carry on. And so spiritual leadership is absolutely essential. And we know that the scriptures teach us this because Jesus taught us this, that real leadership serves people. That spiritual leadership starts with character and integrity. That the aim of spiritual leadership is not to be elevated, but to serve others. And in our church, spiritual leadership, 
must continue to emerge, must continue to be present and proper for the advancement of the gospel to carry on. Again, this is as equally as important as the other three traits. We, of course, look at Christ as our ultimate leader, who is the head of the church, but Christ sent his Holy Spirit down to appoint leaders. In the scriptures, we see leadership in three different layers in the church. First, an elders, a biblical term that means spiritual leader over the church. At our church, we have three, myself, Tom, and Frank. And I will speak about the other two. They're the men of most utmost integrity and character. They have been given a charge of taking spiritual ownership. And I say that in all of the right ways of this church, making sure that it maintains integrity in every decision, financially, personally, practically. And they take that charge seriously. And we are all well served by their character and integrity. And this is important. Their charter, according to the structure of our church, is to maintain spiritual integrity, to hold me accountable to a life of faithful ministry, to make sure that um, good men and women find themselves in significant positions of authority, and to make sure that from a big picture, operationally, we operate in a healthy way. And they do this. So in the same way, if you catch one of them in the lobby and you ask them what's going on in third grade ministry, cut them a little slack. They don't have to know everything. They have to know the people who are making the decisions, and they do. Outside of that, in the church, we see the structure of deacons. That's what they called them back then. Today, we call them staff. Back then, they weren't paid. Today, they're mostly paid. And staff are men and women who, on a daily basis, drive forth what's occurring here. We currently have seven. I fall into both camps. I'll speak about the other six. These are incredibly talented men and women. Incredibly talented men and women who love you guys, who love Jesus, who are unified together, and who spend their days thinking about how best to serve you and to advance the gospel. The third layer of leadership in the church, then, is you guys. The term lay leadership or unpaid leadership emerged, and this is the third level. It is you guys carrying on the heart and the passion of what God is doing. It is you stepping up into roles and using your gifts, serving people. And in part, the movement of the body of Christ is contingent upon your level of engagement and your level of utilizing who God has made you to be for his kingdom. Now, as a church, we have never pushed people to move and act. And some of you arrive in our doors and you're weary and you need rest, and all good leaders do. And so breathe easy, rest, and let God fulfill or fill you back up. But remember, we rest, we don't retire, not in the kingdom. There's too much work to be done. And so let God restore you, let him heal you if you need it. Maybe let the season of life change a little bit, but be activated again, for the cause is worth it. And we need you, and we want you. These four traits are present here in this church, and they're present, I think, a picture of how the church always begins to move. 
And where these four traits get poked at by the enemy, where the enemy tries to come in and, and to corrupt leadership, or where the enemy tries to come in and, and, and make us as the church believe, well, I think I've sacrificed enough. Well, I think I've persevered enough. Or where we get too dejected to carry on, there the enemy will try to sink in to disrupt what is going on. And we mustn't let that happen. We must keep these four traits front and center in our minds. But what will do that? What will allow us to continue to walk these four out and always connect them back to the gospel? What connects these things around this wheel? Well, in Acts chapter 14, Paul shows us when he says they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. That which connects all of this together is prayer and fasting. It's what I spoke about last week and the week before that. The powerful church rooted in proper doctrine and proper levels of prayer and fasting. Commitment and focus to the things of God that then connects us back, connects us back to each of these traits. We saw this with Christ. He prayed before he picked his disciples. He prayed that we, his church, would be strengthened through all generations. He prayed right before he faced the cross. He prayed knowing that he would give himself up as the ultimate sacrifice. If we believe, or let me say it this way, to the level that we believe that the cause is worth it, that the gospel must be moved, and that we play an integral role in it, to that level, we will pray and seek God. And we will ask him to move. I want to end this morning with some pretty music and a little bit of fun. I was a poli-sci major. It's July 4th. Give me a break, okay? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do before I do it. I don't know if King George is in heaven or hell, but I'm about to compare him to Satan a lot. If you don't know who King George is, you really need to study history more or watch Hamilton. Don't watch Hamilton. I just, I just don't like musicals. Can I get an amen? Thank you. So on that day, when Jefferson sat down to write, by the way, there's a funny little dialogue between Jefferson and Adams when they were walking home and they go, so who wants to write it? I'm paraphrasing. And Jefferson goes, you should write it, you're older. And Adams responds to Jefferson, you're a better writer and people like you more. You should probably write it. That's how Jefferson ended up becoming the writer of our declaration. Jefferson wrote these words in the course of human events. Or said another way, when, when times demand action. And Jefferson then would get at what the colonists all knew, that now was the time to act. He would later write these words into that very declaration that a prince 
whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a people. And so we can see the tyrannical acts of King George the tyrant and see how he was unfit to rule. And as we see his unfittingness, it also points us to another prince of the power of the air who is unfit to rule, though who wants to rule, Satan. And so Jefferson then explained how it is imperative then that those people who demand to be free lay out the charges that they have against the one who reigns over them. And so paraphrasing, Jefferson began to write those offenses. King George refused to follow his laws for the common good. Satan has rebelled against God's law for the sake of common destruction. King George met in secret to find ways to enslave the colonists. The enemy plots in darkness ways to destroy us. King George worked hard to stop people from migrating from political slavery to freedom because he did not want their ranks to swell. Satan has one aim, to stop the migration from the domain of darkness to the domain of light because he knows that when people catch the air of spiritual freedom, they unite with others so that others might have it too. King George polluted the good establishment of justice. Satan has created a world completely void of true justice as an aim to turn us against one another. King George kept a standing army in times of peace. For Satan, there is no time of peace. His army is always ready to destroy and it remains present today. And it will attack a church that does not have its defenses up. King George protected unjust soldiers. Satan promotes unjust workers of evil. And King George George waged war against the colonists as Satan wages war against the people of the world and he uses his weapons of deception and lies, depression, disease, and death to hold back the free message of the gospel. And so I would say like the colonists, the time to petition evil is over. We don't send an emissary to Satan. We don't warn him any longer, hey, this is what we're going to do if you don't knock it off. We don't make friends with his demons. Instead, we pledge our allegiance to the greater king, the mighty king, the ruler of all free people, Jesus. And we submit that the time to sacrifice is now. The time to strengthen and encourage one another is now. The time to persevere is now. The time for godly leadership to stand, to rise, and to fight for the advancement of the gospel is now. Oh, and we, we, unlike the colonists who did not have the luxury of hindsight, who could not have known, who thought they were signing their death warrants and could not have seen the free and prosperous nation that their sacrifice would make. We, unlike them, know something that they did not know, that we don't look out to an uncertain future, but instead we look back to an absolute certain 
moment in history when Christ rose from the grave victoriously. We have victory. We have seen victory. And they did not know what would become of King George, but we do know what will become of Satan. He will bow to Jesus. He will bow. And tyranny, let me say it this way, hell, like tyranny, was defeated at the cross. So although these may be and have been over the last year for many times that try men's souls, they are also the opportunity for men and women of Almighty God to show their true colors, to be firm in faith, to fight back the enemy, and to be full of resolve. And so onward, my friends, we march and we pray, God, send revival. For it has been spiritual revival throughout the ages that has turned a nation. And so we start here. We start with us. We start with church week. And we ask God that he would move. And by the strength that we glean from the cross and from the spirit empowered in us, we commit and we will persevere all things, sacrifice all costs, strengthen and encourage each other to all ends, and together play our role in the advancement of the gospel. My name is Stephen Whitlow, and I approve this message. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the clear picture of freedom that we see in the nation that we get to live in and how it was founded. And we are grateful to live here for the religious liberty that we get, the ability to do this, not afraid of our lives being taken. But alas, it does point us to the spiritual battle that is going on that we cannot see. And Father, we have a simple prayer. Send revival and use us if you might. We would be grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.